what's the time of year when we go to a bunch of family gatherings? Maybe you have, I don't know, four or five, and we usually have at least two. Usually it's Katie's side of the family and my side of the family. But maybe you have, like, well, we go to Uncle So-and-So's this week, and then we go to the grandparents, and we go to the, you know, you might have a whole bunch of them. But in that, all of that, all of that gathering together, it can actually be very stressful because sometimes we might be like, well, there's going to be, you know, 15 of my relatives there and, you know, uncle so-and-so uh, always has to get real vocal about his political opinion and everyone gets riled up, you know, whatever it is. I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind here, but just maybe there's just people that maybe rub you the wrong way when you get together for family gatherings or maybe you get together and you're like, ah, this brings to mind um, painful things that happened when I was growing up that there was this stuff that happened, and every time I come back to my family, now that gets kind of like um, stirred back up inside of you. And so family gatherings can be stressful. And most, the most important thing in our lives is our relationships. And they're also the most painful thing in our lives. That of all the things that hurt the most, relationships that are not as they're supposed to be hurt a lot. We have a hard time dealing with challenges in our relationships, and so often we can hold it in, or we might be passive-aggressive, or we might just complain about the person to other people and then act like everything is fine. We might cut them off, avoid them, yell at them, get mad, and act, but then act like it never happened. And we have a very hard time dealing with uh, relationships when they have gone wrong. And we can tend toward either you know, holding it all in or lashing out right away or holding it all in for a while and then kind of exploding. But we often just don't know how to deal with disappointment and pain and hurt in our relationships. And this is very relevant for the series we're, going, we're finishing up today, uh, Now in Flesh Appearing is what it's been called, because we're looking at who, which God did Jesus come to represent, because we sing all these songs. Um, the, the title, Now in Flesh Appearing, comes from a Christmas song where it's saying, Jesus came to earth and as a baby, and now God is in flesh appearing to us, that he's representing himself to us. And so we've been asking, well, which God is this? Which God are we talking about? And when we get to which God is it, what is that God like? And the claim of the New Testament, um, as the, which starts with Jesus' coming and then the ripple effects afterwards, is the claim of the New Testament is that the God of the Old Testament, the first three quarters of the Bible, is the one who had appeared in the flesh. And we're looking at Exodus 34, 6, and 7 to talk about, well, what is this God like? And these five attributes of God... Um, that we've gone over. We finished the five attributes, and now we're going into actually um, four verbs. So you have you could have adjectives, which are describing, and then verbs are action of God, actions God takes. And we can see how precious and important these words were to the people of Israel that they're given to, because these words are quoted so many times throughout, the, at least 20 times, um, maybe up to like 40 times, partially or in full, that these words became, like, this is what our God is like, and we're going to hold on to that. It gives us hope when other things are not going right. And today, as we go into this passage, I just want to give you this question. What does God do when you fail to love him? What does God do when you fail to love him? We're told to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And that doesn't leave anything left over that it's like, well, you know, God just wants 10%. And he wants my Sunday mornings. Uh, he wants my prayers before meals. No, God wants everything, everything you are, everything you have, everything about you. He wants us to love him with all of it. And so what does he do, though, when we fail? He's made it very clear that's what he wants, that we should have no other gods before him, that he should be the only thing we worship and give our lives to. 
So what happens when we fail to love him like that, when we fail to trust him, to stay committed to him, to prioritize him? What does he do when we sin against him, when we turn our back on him? And this question is one of the most important, if not the most important question of your entire life to answer, is what is God like when you fail to love him as you should, as he's told you to? Let me read the verses that we're going over, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and then we'll begin going through them. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him, referring to Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so we've covered all the words in verse 6, uh, all those five words, and it would maybe be a little nice to just stop there, uh, but we get into keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and we're like, yay, God, thank you, and then, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children in the years. So it's like, wait a second, we end this verses with, although it's all those nice things, compassion and mercy and grace and love, and now it's like, but wait, you're going to punish my grandkids? Like, what's going on here? What, uh, God, why is that? Uh, what you're saying here. And so we went through these, pa- these verses. First, we went through compassion and merciful. God's compassion and merciful. Second, God is gracious. Then we went through God is slow to anger. God is overflowing with loyal love. And fifth, God is overflowing with faithfulness. Five attributes and now four verbs, four things that God does. And one of the first things to mention is he says that he's keeping, in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And actually other quotations of this Uh, complete the sentence there of thousand generations. And if you think about uh, people who do like genealogy work or ancestry work, I don't know what the furthest back somebody has traced, but you might be like, you know, somebody says I've traced my family all the way back to the, you know, the Mayflower or something like that. And we're like, wow, that's far back. How many generations is that? 15, 12? But he's talking about thousands. It's like an unimaginable number. I mean, it's basically like Infinite, like you'll never count up a thousand generations, and so it's a forever. And he says that he's keeping steadfast love. We learned about God's love is steadfast, it's loyal, it's committed, it's uh, a no matter what love, it's a still there love that God commits to people and he stays committed. And it says he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, a thousand generations, and then he's forgiving. And you could ask, like, okay, those two words fit together really well because if you are in any long-term relationship, whether it's a friend or a spouse or children or parents, it's that how is that love going to be maintained? Well, you got to forgive each other. How does God keep steadfast love? We could say, well, it's by forgiving. How can he stay committed to a people? How can he stay steadfast to a people? It's that he's forgiving them for all the ways that they fail. And so it keeps steadfast love, but let's talk a little more about uh, forgiveness, that God builds relationship into this, uh, builds forgiveness into this relationship, that he says, from the outset, I'm going to be a forgiving God. And that's essential to any relationship to be able to work long term. And so we're showed that there's a problem, but God provides a solution from the outset, that he's not surprised, like, okay, you guys commit to me, love me with everything you have. What? You didn't? (laughs) It's not like he's surprised, but he builds the forgiveness in that he knows we're going to fail him. But then he says he's going to forgive three different things, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that, those three words really cover 
everything bad you could do uh, according to the Bible. It's three, they kind of are different shades of bad things we can do. So iniquity is like, um, like a twistedness. It's like that our character um, has been twisted. You might say, see somebody like, that's just in their nature. That's just, that's just what they are. That's just what they do. That's just who they are. It's like we've twisted, we've become twisted. Like we, you know, we're supposed to be standing upright, but we've been twisted into something that is now we are deformed in a way uh, because of what we've done to ourselves that we no longer represent and reflect what God is like as his image bearers. And secondly, transgression. What is transgression? Transgression is uh, a covenant word. It's a commitment word. And so if you're going to transgress something, you're transgressing a covenant. You're breaking a commitment to somebody. It's faithlessness. Lastly, what is sin? And that's kind of the more general of them. It means literally missing the mark. If you use, sometimes you can find what words uh, mean because um, we say sin so much. And you're like, well, what is that? Um, there's a passage in the Bible where it's talking about these slingshot guys that say they never, uh, the word here is hatad, they never hatad, meaning they never miss the mark, they never miss what they're aiming at. And then that's using it in a non-religious sense. And so you bring it into the religious sense and it's, oh, we're missing the mark in terms of God says, this is what I'm asking of you, and we're missing the mark. We never hit the target. We're falling short. And so you can really sin against anybody. You can you know, do wrong to anybody in your life. But you can only transgress someone with whom you have a committed relationship, who you've given vows to, that you've made a covenant with. Uh, so it's like, I, it's not necessarily that I sin against, you know, people I don't know. Like maybe it's like, well, I cut that person off. Uh, sorry, I do sin. I cut that person off means I sinned against them, but I didn't necessarily trans commit a transgression against them because I don't really have a covenant relationship. But in a marriage or in this instance between God is that, he says, I want my people to be committed to me, to vow to me. We're in this covenant relationship. Love only me. And we can transgress that because we are in a covenant relationship with him. But God forgives it all. The whole gamut, all the bad things. You might say, well, I can forgive sin, but I can't forgive transgression. That's just too bad to be forgiven. But he's saying, look, I forgive it all. It doesn't matter what it is. Iniquity, transgression, sin, whatever you do, it can be forgiven if you will bring it to me. Nothing is too bad, but not everyone is forgiven. And that's a, a, a very key thing for us to realize, is that forgiveness has to be desired. And for forgiveness to be desired, we have to first admit that we have iniquity and have transgression and sin. But if we go back, this, this statement here is a shorter statement um, of what God says more fully in Exodus chapter 20 when he's given the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to flip back there and read you Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, that this quote already came up. So I'll read, um, actually read the first two commandments. So the first is, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the the Lord, your God, a jealous God. Here it is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And if we went to Deuteronomy, uh, it gets requoted again and also adds in that there's what happens to people who hate me. Here's what happens to people who love me, that people who love me, I show steadfast love. And there's forgiveness built into that relationship. And so who is forgiven? Who can be forgiven? God says, it's those who love me. 
and who can't be forgiven. It's those who hate me. And we shouldn't think of hate as like, you know, your, I don't know, your kids might say, like, I hate you, and go in the room and slam the door. And it's, like, it's not that, like this big emotional thing. Um, it's really a commitment word, that loving God is committing to him. Hating God is turning away from him. It's a, it's a commitment word. It's another covenant word. And so he says, those who love me can be forgiven. So what does that mean? Well, we already talked about God says, love me with everything you have, with everything you are, everything about you. I want you to give it to me. I want you to love me. And so what are we saying? Are we saying only people who do that can be forgiven? That you have to love God perfectly and then you can be forgiven? Like, I'm going to forgive everyone who loves me. And it's like, but wait a second. If we had to be, if we have to be forgiven, that would already tell us that we aren't able to love him perfectly. And so God can't be saying, you need to love me all the time, 100% perfectly. I mean, that's the standard, right? That's what he's calling us to. God can call us to something while knowing you're going to fail at it, but that's what I'm calling you to. That's what I want you to be going in that direction. And I will forgive you for all the times you fall short of it. Because if we were doing that perfectly, we wouldn't need forgiveness. And God knows we'll fail. And, you know, when people make marriage vows, that we are vowing these things to each other. And yet, at the same time, as we're vowing them and committing them to each other, we have to recognize, I'm not going to do this 100% perfect, that in this marriage, there needs to be forgiveness. We're, that's what I'm committing to, and I'm going to fail at those commitments, but I'm going to keep going after them. So forgiveness needs to be built in. And love really includes uh, trusting God. Depending on God, that's what, how God defines it. If you're going to love me, that means you're also trusting me for the forgiveness that I offer you when you fail to love me. But the question is, what if you don't love him? What happens to people who don't love him? What is their fate? But we see that at the end, uh, the second part of Exodus 34, uh, second part of verse 7. He says, uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And you might, you know, sometimes we say to somebody, I love you, but, and it's kind of almost like cancels out what came before it. And so that but might be like, I'm going to forgive you, but I also won't clear the guilty. And you're like, isn't that a, a contradiction? Like, isn't forgiving someone clearing the guilty? Like, you've done this thing to me, you're guilty of it, you asked for forgiveness, you said I'm sorry. I forgive you. I've cleared you of your guilt. And he said, what, what's going on here? Like, I'm going to forgive, but I won't clear you. Another way to translate the but could be yet. I'm forgiving, and yet I'm not clearing the guilty. And how does he not clear the guilty? He says, by visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children. And, you know, by the way, we're, uh, we're giving out some free mugs with this verse on it. Uh, God visits the iniquity on the children. Oh, yeah. No, I don't hold... Hold the excitement. We have limited supply. Um, but what we have to ask, what does visiting the iniquity not mean? What does visiting the iniquity not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that children are punished for what their parents did. And you can see this in lots of examples in the Bible. People actually taking this verse in the Bible and the people of Israel misinterpreting them. So one instance of this is that um, this generation of people that God is talking to that they break, they transgress their covenant with God so much, they keep refusing to trust them, that he brings them up out of Egypt, he says, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan, and they've seen all the plagues, and all the power, and God protecting them, and providing for them, and they get up to the promised land, 
and they're standing at the Jordan River, and they send some spies over to check it out, and they come back, and they're like, we can't take this land. And they refuse to go into it. And so they show, we don't trust God to keep his promises. He said he'll give it to us, but we don't trust that he can actually do that. They're afraid of it. And so God says, okay, fine. Like, you know, it's a privilege to have this land. And the responsibility you have is to love me and trust me. If you're not going to do that, fine, you don't get the land. And so God tells the people of Israel, you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until that generation that refused to trust me to do what I said I would do all dies off, and then their kids are going to get the land. So it's an instance of the parents suffer for what they have chosen, and the kids are allowed to have the land, even though the parents weren't allowed to. Another example is that uh, Exodus, or sorry, Ezekiel 18, that there is a saying going around, Ezekiel was a prophet to the people of Israel, and during his time they had been captured. Uh, the uh, Empire of Babylon had come into Israel, had taken them out of the land of Israel, and brought them to Babylon. And then Ezekiel is sitting there uh, with all these people, and God tells, gives them a message to tell the people. There's a saying that said, um, hopefully I get it right, is that the, the parents ate sour grapes, and now the kids' teeth are uh, something like... Um, stuck on edge or something like that. So it's basically like the parents ate these grapes and then they had kids and now the parent and now the kids have that the consequence of them eating those sour grapes in their mouth after they're born. It was like a metaphor for, well, the parents made this bad choice and now the kids still have that bitter taste residing in, in their life as well. But God tells them, no, no, that's not the case. You aren't in exile being punished for what your parents did. That each generation has the opportunity to turn back to God. It's not just, well, I'm here because of my parents, and there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm being punished for their sin. No, you're not being punished for their sin. Like, you might be in this position because you're affected by what they did. Like, of course the kids that couldn't, or the, the parents that couldn't enter the promised land, their kids wander around the desert with them for 40 years, but then they got to go in. Of course you're sitting in exile because your parents turned away from me, but now there's a chance for you. You can turn back to me. It's not just like, you know, set in stone like that. Another example is in John 9 that somebody asked Jesus, uh, why is this man blind? Did his parents sin or did he sin? He was born blind. Obviously somebody did something wrong and Jesus just will not have the conversation. No, that's not how it works. Like you people aren't, kids aren't suffering because of what their parents did. It's not a punishment. So what does visiting the iniquity mean? It's interesting that iniquity is the thing that's singled out. He doesn't say visit the sin, visit the transgression, visit the iniquity. Remember, iniquity is kind of like this, this twistedness. Things have gotten messed up. Things have gotten, you were messed up, we're broken. We've kind of got twisted and corrupted by our sin. And that twistedness gets passed down. The brokenness gets passed down. There's negative consequences. The, the, uh, the parents' choices have a ripple effect down the generations. It's kind of like leaving a legacy. What kind of legacy is going to be left? Like, what am I going to hand my kids in terms of our relationship with God? Is it going to be my twistedness? Am I brokenness, or is it going to be we, this family, trust God? And you see a really great example of this in the book right before Exodus, the book of Genesis. And you see a man named Abraham. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bring blessing back to this cursed world through you, and if you will trust me and walk with me. And there's instances where Abraham doesn't trust God. He lies to other people uh, in order to keep himself safe. So it's like, okay, just a little lie, like that's fine. Um, but it, what happens is it starts to begin to snowball as the generations go because then his son Isaac does the same thing, tells the exact kind of lie to protect himself to other people instead of trusting God. So they're lying to people outside their family. But now when you get down to Isaac, so there's Abraham and then there's Isaac and then his two kids, Jacob and Esau, 
Now they start lying within the family, not lying to people outside of the family to keep themselves safe. They start lying to each other. And so Jacob, um, uh, his mom, Rachel, uh, who's Isaac's wife, is like, hey, you're not the oldest son, so you're not going to get the blessing of the oldest son, but um, let's deceive your dad. You're going to pretend to be your brother, uh, Esau, and you're going to deceive your dad in order to get the blessing of the older son um, and take it away from your older brother. And so that's what happens is that Jacob pretends to be Esau. He goes in, deceives his dad. Uh, he gets the, the blessing of the older son, and now Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. And so then Jacob runs off. Um, his mom says, go to my brother Laban. He's in this other country. Go to Laban. And he goes there. And then what happens is Laban ends up deceiving Jacob. And then he, all this deceiving goes back and forth and back and forth. And so it's like snowballing. This lying and deceiving is getting worse and worse. And then when you get to Jacob's sons, who are the 12 end up being the 12 tribes of Israel, um, now they all have all this lying. They deceive their father. Like, well, your youngest son, or your son Joseph, he's dead. Um, even though they're, they know he's not dead, they sent him and sold him off to slavery. But they deceive their dad, and they hated their brother Joseph. They're jealous of him. And there's all this strife and yuckiness and brokenness in this family, this iniquity, this twistedness that got passed down and snowballed all the way down to uh, the 12 sons of Jacob, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. What you see in this story is actually one person can turn the whole thing around. So what happens is that you can pass down the negative consequences of hating God, not trusting God, not loving Him. You can also pass down the positive consequences of trusting and loving God. You can give a legacy. And the person who changes the course for this family is a man named Joseph that we already mentioned, that his brothers sell him into slavery, and he gets trucked down to Egypt, and eventually... Over a course of events, he becomes second in command. We can't go through all how that happens. He becomes second in command of Egypt, basically managing this famine. And at some point, this famine is so big that his brothers actually end up coming down and asking him for food, even though they don't know it's him they're asking for food. And then what happens is the whole family gets brought down, and Joseph ends up saving his whole family. And God uses what his brothers did for the good of this family to save them. And Joseph, the whole time we're told, he trusts God. He listens to God. He walks with God. And so he saves his family. Look at the contrast. He's going to uh, pass down to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But then look at the contrast that those who love me to the thousand, thousand, I have such trouble with that word, thousand generation. And so it's like there's three, four generations of that sin building, building up. And then God is powerful enough to use that bad for good. And then now Joseph, because of what his family did, was put in a position to actually save his family. And all along, you can see like, that there was loyal love to this family. God didn't give up on them, even though the iniquity is being passed down, because then he decided to use the one that they had wronged to save this family. So the loyal, steadfast love was happening alongside the, the iniquity and it being passed down. And so we can ask, are there still consequences for sin if you love God? What does it mean to be forgiven? If you're forgiven, are there consequences? If someone completely breaks my trust, forgiving them wouldn't mean I have to trust them completely again, that there would be consequences to that action. You know, if we forgive someone, we're not seeking payback, we're not seeking revenge, we're ripping up the IOU, you don't owe me, I'm not going to seek to have you pay me back for this. Uh, but also, there can be consequences. And we see in Hebrews chapter 12, it's called discipline. That God loves us enough to discipline us 
for our good. Even if it doesn't feel good at the time, it is for our good. And so would it, would it be loving to do nothing about our sin? Would it be loving to us? Would it be loving to other people of what we've done to them? It, it wouldn't. And love that doesn't discipline isn't love at all. So, and God wants more for us. He wants to untwist us. He wants to restore us, to take this iniquity out of us so we become the kind of people that uh, do good to him. And we have this, or do good to others. We have this great book. It's called Arlo and the Great Big Cover-Up. It would be one of the top kids' books I would recommend for understanding what does it feel like when we sin and how does God restore us. And what happens in this book is Arlo does this thing uh, and then he's scared of his mom and he hides and she comes in the room, she asks him to come out of hiding, and then they talk, and he, she asks him questions like, did you do this? She can see what's happened, so he, she asks him, did you color on the wall with your marker? And she wants him to say yes. Did you also try to hide it from me? Yes, I did that. And then eventually he just says, you, were, you know you're not supposed to do that. And he just says, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry, Mom. I, uh, will you forgive me? She says, I forgive you. And then he starts thinking, he's like, wait, does this mean... Um, am I going to get punished? And she says, yes. You're going to lose your screen time for tomorrow that you usually like to have on your snack. Um, and then he has this little bubble that's like, oh, I like my screen time when I have my snack. But then he also says, but I can't feel too bad about it while my mom is hugging me like this. And so he's being disciplined. She forgives him. There's consequence to his actions. And yet he's being embraced and held, not cut off. And I that image has helped me so much of like, what does it look like for a parent or for God or anybody for us to say what you did was not right and you need to be held accountable for that and for us to say I, I forgive you and also have a close relationship and then also say but there are consequences to this and we need to work through that. So what we see from God is that there's high standards and limitless grace that we're saved from something and we're saved for something to be his people his treasured possession a kingdom of priests a holy nation and in the New Testament, what often says is live a life worthy of recalling that God has called you to be his children, to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, live worthy of that. And God not only revealed himself by saving them from Egypt, but also saving them from themselves. That actually, Egypt was a temporary problem, but the twistedness that they have in themselves is more longer lasting, even when they're out of Egypt. It's in how he responded to their unfaithfulness. And it's really only in their unfaithfulness that God can fully be revealed. If it's just like, I'm just saving you from something, just saving you from Egypt. Actually, he's not fully revealed himself because now he has to reveal who he is in their sin, in their transgression, in their iniquity, in their unfaithfulness to him. And to make himself known, he had to respond to their sin in this way. To show them he's a God who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love, who holds on to it and forgives, but who doesn't clear the guilty of the consequences. So we see that God is loving and he's forgiving and he's just all at the same time. That Arlo's mom was all at the same time loving him, forgiving him, and also just all at the same time. But how can God be all three at the same time? How can he declare the guilty innocent? They're guilty. How can he forgive them? Uh, the New Testament word is justification. To justify someone means to declare them righteous. That like you are in the right. You didn't do anything wrong. But what we're told is that God justifies. He declares righteous the guilty. Not based on, 
well, we've gone to court, and now we find out you didn't actually do anything wrong, so I'm going to declare you innocent, righteous of this crime. No, we are guilty of the crime, and yet God declares us righteous. How can he do that? That's unjust. How can God be just and also forgiving? And the question of the Bible isn't, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? That's not the question the Bible wrestles with. The question the Bible wrestles with is, how could a just God not send everyone to hell? That's the question. How We think, how could a loving God punish us in the way he says he's going to punish us? That's not the question the Bible answers. The Bible is saying, God is just, and so how is he going to let any of us off the hook? How are we not all going to be punished for what we've done against him? And it's like showing up to court for murder and being sent home free. Like That's not just, right? If you've committed the crime, there should be a punishment to fit it. What we see in Romans 3, uh, just... You know, understanding the whole Bible in those verses, Romans uh, 3, 21 through 26, that we're told we all fall short, we all have sinned, we all miss the mark, we all break covenant with God. and But then what we're told is that, but God himself pays the price of us falling short through Jesus. And then what those verses say, it's like, how, it's how can God both be just and declare the guilty innocent? Is that what that passage says is by putting Jesus forward, by himself paying the price for our crimes, God can now both be just and the justifier of the guilty. The per- he's still just, and he's still declaring the guilty righteous. And God can do that because he says, I will pay the price. I will meet what my justice demands. My justice demands that you've fallen short, and now this is what you deserve, but I'm going to pay it for you. So God can both be just because he meets the man- demands of his own justice, and the one at the same time who's declaring the guilty righteous. There's this quote, you know, we can kind of go to two extremes. God is all justice, or God is all loving and forgiving, and to the exclusion of the others. But really, a good way to think about it is that God's love is just, and God's just is, is love. Is that God's mercy is just, and God's justice is merciful. And there's this cross. When we look to Jesus, uh, or this quote, sorry, this is a quote about the cross. The cross, in fact, is the perfect statement both of God's wrath against sin and of the depth of his love and mercy in the recovery of the damaged creation and its damagers. The tension between God's holy righteousness and his compassionate mercy cannot be legitimately resolved by remolding his character into an image of pure benevolence. There is only one way that this contradiction can be removed, through the cross of Christ, which reveals the severity of God's anger against sin and the depth of his compassion in paying its penalty through the vicarious sacrifice of his Son. And all these things that God says in Exodus 34, he said, Moses said, show me your glory. And then God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so God's uh, glory is the outward shining of his goodness. And that's what Moses hears. He hears, this is what my goodness is. This is what I am like. And the goodness of God is seen in how he pays the price for what we've done against him. As that he satisfies his justice by being compassionate and merciful, paying for it himself. And the cross of Jesus dying in our place tears down this lie. God isn't that good, and sin isn't that bad. That's the, the lie way back that humanity believed, is that, you know what, God really doesn't have your best interests in mind. And also, the consequences of what he says not to do aren't really that bad. God isn't that good, sin isn't that bad. And the cross tears that down, that shows us 
No, God is as good as he says he is, and sin is as bad as he says it is, and he is so good that he's going to take care of it on our behalf if we will trust him, turn to him, and love him. I think sometimes we, we have a hard time as parents and as people. Uh, we kind of, you may have had parents like this, where it's like one parent was the strict parent and forced the rules, one parent was the lenient parent. They, you know, kind of like, eh, you know, we can kind of fudge with the rules. And we have a really hard time actually being both, being caring a lot about the rules and about justice and righteousness and also being compassionate and gracious and forgiving. We have a hard time being both. But actually, if you go to the other two, either strict or lenient, it doesn't actually give you what you want or what you need. You want somebody who loves you unconditionally, who will always be there for you, and who holds you to high standards, that wants you to be better than you currently are. I want to help you grow, but when you fail to grow, I'm still going to be there. I'm going to forgive you. We need both of them together. It's actually more satisfying that God not only pays the penalty for our sin, that we're completely accepted as we are, but that he loves us enough to not leave us as we are. That he wants us to be free from the power of it as well. And so I'd ask you, what does God do when you fail to love him, when you fail to trust him, when you fail to stay committed to him, when you don't prioritize him, when you sin against him? And we could also ask, well, okay, I do that. But how can I be accepted and forgiven by God? What do we have to do? And the answer has enormous implications for your life. Because the answer we're given is, well, if you love him, he'll forgive you. If you love him, you'll be accepted by him. You'll be forgiven. And we might think, okay, what does it mean to love God? It means, well, I know I've got to read my Bible. I should be doing that. I should be praying. But I don't pray enough. Uh, I know that. But also, well, I should be coming on Sundays. And, you know, maybe 50% of the year that could feel good or whatever. And I should probably give some money and this and this and that. He's like, oh, maybe I should, you know, treat people nicer. And so we might have this list of things. What would it mean to love people? It would mean this list of things. And then, but then what we're saying, if you love me, uh, that means if you read your Bible, if you pray, if you come to church services, if you give your money, if you do those things, I will forgive you. And what we're saying is that God's forgiveness is based on how well we can keep the rules, which doesn't make sense because we need forgiveness for breaking his commands, his laws. We're saying, so to be forgiven, you have to be a good person who does everything God says. Well, that doesn't make sense, right? But we see that Israel was loved by God first. And we are loved by God first. And then he says, and now I want you to respond in love to me. And loving him means not just those list of things that we do, but it also means loving who he is. It's, it's saying uh, it's not, loving God isn't this list of things. It starts first and primarily of, I just love what God is like. I just love who he is. I love how loving he is, how forgiving he is, how compassionate he is, how merciful he is. That doesn't matter how many times I mess up. And that's what's called worship. Worship isn't, I have my checklist of things. Worship is, God, I love who you are. I cannot get enough of you. And it's like the more I get of you, the more I discover how good you are. And I just keep going deeper and deeper into this, that, Loving God isn't first this list of to-do things, but of rules to follow, but it's first loving Him, that He first loved us, and now we receive that love, and we just love how loving He is to us. Because the reality is that we can do all of that stuff that I just mentioned and still hate God. Read the Gospels of Jesus confronting people, keeping all the rules, but who hate how loving and forgiving and gracious God is. They just don't get it. And so you can keep all the rules and still hate God. And so we can rest in who God is. He's compassionate, gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love. He's forgiving. He's holding accountable. Like he forgives and he's loving and compassionate, but he doesn't let people off the hook. And we might feel like, I want to be left off the hook sometimes, but we also don't want other people to be left off the hook. That God is just. He will deal with what people have done. We can rest in Jesus' forgiveness for us. I just want to close by reading this quote I've read from this book numerous times called Gentle and Lowly. I'm just going to read this quote. I've read this quote before too, but it's so perfect for uh, conclusion to this series and this message. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3, when when, uh, first humans turned from God, not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Let's pray. Father, we hear these words and we just hear that you are far better than we realize, that you love us far more than we know, that you are so good to us. And when we give thanks and share with each other, we're only seeing a a glimpse a drop of it. God, would you remove those dark thoughts of you, those ways we see you that are not true of you, and would you let us receive you as you really are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.